0: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your
1: medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. I'm a huge Susan Stroman fan who is, of course, director of Big Fish. And you have a long working relationship with her. So can you take me through how that started?
0: Yeah, well, basically, I'm the luckiest person on the planet (laughs) to have gotten the the chance to sort of be in her world. I was uh, working as a director and choreographer. I was on the national tour of Hairspray. And uh, they were doing the national tour of producers coming up. Stroman didn't do that tour, uh, but her right-hand man in London, a guy by the name of Nigel West, did the show. And uh, they were looking for an assistant, and I got recommended for the job because oh, wow. I was working for the producer. And so I assisted him on that on the national tour of the producers. And at the end of that production, after we opened, I'll never forget, it was New Year's Eve, I got an email, and the subject line of the email said, from Susan Stroman. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she basically just said, you know, I, I'm doing a new production of a show called Young Frankenstein. I just had lunch with Nigel West, and he was singing your praises. And I wondered if you might want to get together and talk about perhaps working on Young Frankenstein.
1: Oh, my gosh. It took me like a day. Happy New Year.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And so I spent all New Year's Day like crafting the perfect response to say (laughs) yes. (laughs) Uh, Just to say yes. (laughs) Yeah, so essentially I met with her, uh, and then uh, I had a couple of meetings with her. And at the end of our second meeting, she hired me to be her assistant choreographer on Young Frankenstein. So now that's been 12, 13 years now. And so I've been lucky to be at her side really since that time. We did Young Frankenstein, then we did a show called Happiness at Lincoln Center, Big Fish, Scottsboro Boys, and uh, then after that, Bullets Over Broadway. And uh, so I've been really lucky to, you know, be at her side in the creation of some of these big, giant, iconic musicals.
1: That's incredible. How have you found that you work well together?
0: Yeah, well, that you know, I was terrified going into the first day of rehearsals of Young Frankenstein because of course Harry I'm the luckiest person on the planet getting this job and so I didn't want to you know mess it up and uh, <laughs> as time went on with each show that we've done I've sort of gained more and more you know, our relationship has grown closer now I basically can finish her sentences I know wow. all the things that she loves the things that she wants to avoid and so uh, as an associate to her it was it's She's such a creative soul and she and I have, you know, relied on each other. And she often says, I'm the, I'm the what if guy. I'll I'll go, Oh, what if we tried this? It could could also work that way. You know, and and that's the, I think the most fun part of the rehearsal process. I could, I could be in a room with her forever and just be going, okay, what if we tried this?
1: Wow. Just like the curiosity of it all. (laughs) Welcome everybody to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about the musical Big Fish, which was a listener request from Ian. Thanks for listening, Ian. And to everybody out there, if you ever send me a recommendation, I promise I don't forget about them. I am always in search of the perfect guest and the perfect guest for Big Fish kind of fell out of the sky and I was just so happy and honored. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Jeff Whiting on the show, one of the busiest people I've ever heard of in my life. Director, choreographer, associate director and assistant choreographer to Susan Stroman on Big Fish in particular. But I think that I am most in awe of your app. (laughs) <laughs> as someone who's been a dance captain before good heavens we all owe you a huge huge debt of gratitude
0: oh thank you
1: <laughs> can you talk to everybody about this uh, you'll yeah, explain it better than i
0: sure. do well thank you so much for having me here this has been this is so much fun to, to chat but yes stage right uh is a an app a web app and an ipad app that allows you to track all the moving pieces of the production. So that includes the movement of the actors and the performers around the stage. But also you can track all the scenery and the prop movement. So it basically allows you to track where everybody is at every given moment during the production.
1: Which if you've ever been on the other side of the table or a dance captain, you're always, you've always been in charge of creating the show Bible, right? It's this huge binder that gives you scoliosis and it has every piece of information that you just said you're creating it on top of learning the show and the show is constantly changing. So the book is constantly changing and it is kind of the bane of my existence <laughs> whenever I've had to do it.
0: It's a challenging thing for sure. But, so
1: to create an app for it, how did that start?
0: Yeah, well, I actually started my first project with Stroman. Uh, I think it's the reason I got the job actually when I first interviewed to meet with her for to work on Young Frankenstein, I actually had the inklings of the idea of how it could work. And she you know, she has some of the most detailed shows out there. So in our first meeting, she pulled out one of those giant binders and flipped through the producers. And she was like, do you think you could do this? One of your duties would be to create the show Bible. And I said, yeah. I said, actually, I have an idea to use technology to actually make it easier and more accurate. And she was like, okay, cool. And so overnight, I actually... In the precursor to the app, I like created the opening number to Young Frankenstein, and I printed out a hard copy of it, and I said, you know, this is kind of what it would look like, and I delivered it to her office the next day. And I think that's how I got the job, and it was while we were working on Young Frankenstein, the orchestrator of the show, Doug Besterman, one of the great Broadway Amazing. orchestrators, he was carrying around the theater a tablet. This was the first time I'd ever seen a tablet, and I was like, what is that? It was like, you know, swiping with his finger. He goes, It's a tablet. He's like, the entire score is in this little thing. And I was like, what? And so later that year, the iPad came out, and I knew immediately that this technology that I had in my head would be an iPad app.
1: Oh, that's fantastic.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's been fun to, you know, it's really out of personal need. I needed to do these Bibles, and I kept looking for software thinking, oh, somebody surely has done this. And I finally just said, well, I might as well do it. I know exactly what I want it to be. I might as well design it. Yeah, it's That's been great. out for about eight years now. It's been fun to see. I think we have over fifty thousand users worldwide,
1: and so it's fun to see it be adopted, you know, by the industry. That's so cool. <laughs> What's really funny is last year when we did "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown," um, our guest was Julie Cohen Theobald, who is the executive director of the Educational Theater Foundation, and are, you're on the board, right? I am, yes, I am. Which I'm is my... kind of how we made the connection.
0: That's right, yeah. I actually listened to her, uh, to the podcast you guys did together, and I think it was that day, you know, she introduced us, and I was like, of course, I would love to chat. And oh, yeah, though it's a it's tangled a... web we all have.
1: <laughs> it's a small <laughs> community, for sure. <laughs> um, I, I assume that means that you're also very passionate about theater education.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's been fun. I, I think I'm in my second year of being on the board and it's so fun to find ways to, you know, particularly this year, find ways for students everywhere to be able to have access to theater and to have, you know, proper training, not only for the students, but also for the educators so that they can provide the best education possible. It's a wonderful organization.
1: And if you weren't busy enough, you've also done open jar this year talk can you talk about that my gosh like did you have trauma like why are you so busy (laughs) I don't know (laughs) Um, you're just industrious I guess so uh
0: yeah well I I have run a theater training program called the open jar institute for about 15 years and wow. it's a, it started as a summer theater program we bring in you know high school and college kids for the summer and they work you know side by side with broadway professionals during the summer so i've been doing that for a while and about now 3 years ago i was like we're almost year round i was sick of renting space so i ended up finding a space and now we have a huge 50,000 square foot space in times it's square it's like the biggest one right it's in... the biggest studio in new york yeah so we wow. this building is it's a beautiful place but it randomly has no columns and so column free space in new york is a hot commodity and so as soon as i walked in i went oh my gosh i don't really need this much space but i know people who do so i put together an investment team mostly made of broadway producers and designers all who know the value of it And so we we've been open now about a year and a half open jar studios on the corner of 48th and broadway
1: that's amazing. Yeah. And I know that you've been doing some interesting projects in quarantine in 2020. Yes,
0: yeah. We, we sort of had to pivot like the rest of the world. Uh, March 12th, I was walking around the studios just turning out the lights and turning off the air conditioning, not really knowing you know, when we would be back because everything was closed down. And literally, as I was walking around the studios, I got a call from a friend of mine, Neil Douglas Riley, who's a wonderful composer, and he now works in government. And he called me, he said we keep hearing that Broadway wants to help in the, you know, with this pandemic, but nobody's really organized. And he said, I I was just thinking who's good at organizing Jeff Whiting and what's the center of Broadway open jar studios. He said, could you just like try to organize all the players of Broadway and put together a a call with governor Cuomo, who's our our governor. And I said, of course I started like just putting together a phone call. Uh, with all the major players on Broadway, to just figure out how we could help. In the course of that tornado of phone calls and emails, I ended up on a phone call with the New York City EDC, which is the Economic Development Corporation. And they were charged from the governor with the task of making 10 million hospital gowns for the New York Public Hospitals. On that call was me representing Broadway and then four other like big factories who make clothes for the Gap and Ralph Lauren. And and she just basically said, we need to make as many gowns as quickly as we can. And so on the spot, I was sort of like a Mickey and Judy. I was like, well, I got a big space and we've got, you know, hundreds of stitchers that normally are making Broadway costumes. Let's do it here. So basically we transformed Open Jar Studios, normally rehearsal space, into a PPE factory. So That following week, we basically enlisted over 400 Broadway professionals, stitchers, designers, stage managers, actors who all, of course, the stitchers did the sewing, but there was plenty of preparation work. So I think it was 59 days we created over 51,000 hospital gowns for the New York City
1: Hospitals. (laughs) 51,000? Yes. Jeff, that's incredible.
0: It was very cool to see just how the entire Broadway community really stepped forward and just... You know, made something out because we were all sitting in front of our TVs, not knowing what to do, and then this here somebody said, "Well, here's something you can do." And So it's been cool to to do that. So we we did our gowns, and then after our order with the city was done, now we're making uh, masks. We're making what we call the singer's mask, which is a a mask that has structure inside of it, so you can. Breathe in when you're singing and not breathe in a mouthful of fabric. So, fabric. so we've been I think we we've we've created over hundred and fifty thousand of those masks already.
1: How do we support that? And yeah. or buy them because yeah.
0: you can go to our website which is Broadway dot com or the singersmask.com.
1: How cool. Yeah. My gosh. <laughs> Jeff Whiting, he gets uh. things done. <laughs>
0: Well, look, you know, we we have this space and I was like, well, we have this opportunity. And I think the greatest thing about it is, you know, we've been able to do something for the cause, but also our industry, which is at a shutdown, we've provided over 400 jobs for people in our community. So that feels wonderful that at least we have, it's not the job any of us ever thought we would be doing, but at least it's an income of some kind for all these individuals.
1: Oh, my gosh. Very inspiring. (laughs) What a way to start the episode <laughs> uh, about a show, by the way, that makes me sob openly. <laughs> me too. So yeah. this was not a good beginning because now I'm already feeling <laughs> <laughs> like sympathetic. <clears throat> now, Big Fish is, of course, based on a movie <clears throat> by Tim Burton and both the movie and the musical, to me, have a lot in common. And it's not just the story. Yeah. So there's this book, right? And it's written by uh, Mr. Daniel Wallace, who didn't have an awesome relationship with his dad. His dad was very much like a businessman. Daniel wants to become a writer. And he explores the father-son dynamic in this book entitled Big Fish, which is about a, a son really struggling to get to know his father before he dies and before the book even goes into print but when it's just a manuscript it's read by John August who is a famous screenwriter he reads the book before it's even published and is like um i got to make this into a script and i think i can't remember what studio he convinces to buy it but he columbia i think was it was a columbia called. thank yeah. you mm-hmm. So he turns it into a script, and it becomes just this the script that the, the a bunch of directors read. Steven Spielberg is looking into making it into a movie. He ultimately passes to make Catch Me If You Can, which is also about a father-son relationship, <laughs> and also becomes a musical, go figure. <laughs> but when Spielberg passes, Tim Burton gobbles it up instead. Now, at this point, Tim Burton is known for making super quirky but also incredibly successful films. Beetlejuice, Batman, Pee Wee Herman's Big Adventure, Edward Scissorhands. And even though he's really celebrated and really beloved, I think that Hollywood had always been in a very condescending way, asking, when is Tim Byrne going to make a real movie? (laughs) And so when it's announced that he's going to make Big Fish, a script that Spielberg almost made, it's like, oh my gosh, here it comes. This is Tim Burton's entry into essentially the Oscars, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is going to be his big Oscar-nominated film. It comes out. I'd say it's like pretty well-received. People like it. Oscars come around. It gets no love whatsoever. I think it gets one nomination for Danny Elfman's score, and everything else is forgotten, despite having some incredible production design and amazing performances. The film made... A pretty good amount of money in the theaters, but not enough to cover the budget because Tim Byrne doesn't know how to make an inexpensive film. But it becomes a big hit on home video. And I think it even propels the success and and notoriety of it further. Then it gets turned into a musical. Enter you (laughs) to to help me with these holes. It's not Always done that. The musical is also written by the person who wrote the movie, but this yeah. is the case. Uh, John August also wrote the script for the musical.
0: Yeah, I think he always knew that he wanted that to be the case. You know, it's, it's such a beautiful you know story on its own, and I think he, he he talks about even while they were making the film, he knew that he wanted to make it into a musical already.
1: And he's no stranger to musical-like storytelling. He had done Corpse Bride with Tim Byrne. He had mm-hmm. done the new Willy Wonka, which also had <laughs> kind of mm-hmm. fantasy musical sequences. So yeah. it's not like some guy who's like, musical theater, that seems easy. Let's <laughs> give it a whirl. I, I feel like he really did respect the art form and saw a, a, a really great entry point for the story.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, one of the challenges you know, and taking any movie and making it into then a musical is... You have certain limitations, you know, you can't just like, you know, with a flick of the pen go to a new location. So, but John did a beautiful job in adapting it, you know, for the stage and for the
1: musical. And you all opened the show, or you all previewed the show in Chicago, right?
0: Yeah, we did. Yeah, and it was a very different show to what you ended up seeing on
1: Broadway. What, for you, were the big shifts from the preview period to the Broadway opening?
0: Yeah, well, I think the biggest shift that we made, you know, from Chicago to the Broadway production was really the relationship of the father and son story. You know, it was perceived by many in Chicago that the son was coming across, you know, as a complainer, and and yet he's the person who the audience is supposed to sort of be seeing it through his eyes. So we really took a hard examination at why was he being perceived that way, and it's sort of built into the story. You know, here's a son who his father, he grew up with his father just telling these crazy big fish tales, you know, that weren't true, and he ends up being an, a, a reporter. And so, you know, facts matter, and so he was always just like, my dad is just a liar, you know, so that's not what is at the core. The core is that he learns to understand his father in a new way. But it was, the audience was, at the, from the beginning, just perceived that this young kid just, you know, wasn't likable.
1: This is where the similarities, I think, between the movie and the stage production really get going for me, because mm-hmm. I think that that was a big problem for the film as well. You have somebody as charismatic as freaking Albert Finney, you yeah. know, playing the father, and then you've got the son, Billy Crudup, amazing actor, nothing against him, who's like, mm, I don't like you. And everybody watching is like, your dad's Albert Finney. What's the problem? <laughs> like, <you're, laughs> everything's fine. And I think mm-hmm. that you'd face the same thing on stage when you've got freaking Norbert Leo butts. Mm -hmm. playing the the character this time, someone with all of the energy and all of the charisma that you would ever want in a stage performer and then having a son complain about it. It's like, your dad's Norbert. (laughs) Your dad's Fiero. What's the problem? (laughs) <laughs> exactly yeah no it's a, it was the trickiest
0: thing about the story to tell because you you know you want to fall in love with edward and norbert the character that norbert played you know and you know it just it was hard to go well what are you complaining about bobby you know mm-hmm.
1: exactly <laughs> so
0: yeah so that was i think that was the biggest challenge that we faced
1: now i uh read the script in preparation for this yeah. and i feel like i got a better sense of the sun in the musical than i do in the film I, so yeah. props to you all, because oh, there, it, it does reach a point where you're like, okay, this dad's a little annoying. I would be annoyed.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. That is good to hear. Yeah. Because that was, a, we made a big effort to make sure that, you know, you could you know, see where the where the two worlds were so far apart and yet mm-hmm. not hate either of them so that you yeah. can be happy when they meet in the middle.
1: Yeah. Exactly. The show, like we said, Tries On Chicago, you open on Broadway at the end of 2013. I believe. And once again, in the same way that the film was very much hyped, I feel like this musical was very much hyped. You had Susan Stroman behind it. You had the notoriety of the film title. You had Andrew Lippa as composer and lyricist, who we've already discussed uh, from The Wild Party and, you know, writing supplemental music for Your Good Man Charlie Brown. And yet, you all open on Broadway, and I just want to go through the list of musicals that opened during the 2013 2014 season starting with first date soul doctor big fish a night with janice joplin after midnight a gentleman's guide to love and murder beautiful the carol king musical the bridges of madison county rocky aladdin if then bullets over broadway that's one (laughs) season (laughs) <laughs> that is a jam-packed Broadway season, if I've ever heard one. That was a
0: big season. I'd forgotten all those shows that opened that same year. Wow!
1: So then Tony Award time comes around, and a bunch of those musicals get forgotten, and one of them is Big Fish. Yeah,
0: that's true. Yep. we
1: were gone. I think by the, we were gone really by the time
0: you know nominations came out. So I think that was because we had closed. I think at end of December. So you know by the time people were thinking about the Tonys, the shows that were still running. You know, we're much more on the mind.
1: So it it wasn't a financial success, despite having really beautiful production designs and stellar performances. It doesn't get remembered by the awards people. And yet, the only musical that has been requested by my listeners of these musicals from that season is Big Fish.
0: Wow, that's good to hear.
1: It kind of is the home video phenomenon where the... The cast album came out, which I think a lot of people really took to some of the songs like Stranger, like everybody sings Stranger mm-hmm. in the in the audition room now. Yep. And then it gets done a lot locally at regional theaters. I think there's even a high school version, right? There is. Yeah. In fact, I heard from uh, one of the licensing
0: companies that they they really never anticipated because the Broadway show wasn't a long, long running hit they didn't really anticipate that it was going to be a big hit, but they say Big Fish is one of the most produced musicals right now.
1: So that, I think that's crazy,
0: fascinating. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful story that, you know, there's nothing offensive in it. So it can you know take place in a high school. It can be anywhere across the U S so there's nothing really offensive in it. So, and mm-hmm. there's great opportunity for magic. You know, you, because it takes you anywhere, and these wonderful, magical things happen, you know, it really ignites the imagination. So the licensing company I spoke to said it's unbelievable how much this musical gets produced.
1: That's so exciting to me. <laughs> also, I think that there is something anti New York about this <laughs> musical a little bit. <laughs> it's true. I know I'm talking about I'm talking to a New York resident right now. but you know, the son who if there is an antagonist in the show, he kind of is it. Mm -hmm. And it's because he's a hard facts type of guy from New York. Meanwhile, Edward and the story represents so much of the rest of America Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is really attractive to local theaters and local audiences. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I watched every show and every preview and, you know, to see families come in the door and at the end of the show, watch them holding each other really closely. It's an, it's an emotional show. So everybody who saw the show loved it and was touched and moved by it. And, you know, why they didn't all go out and say, you must buy your ticket now to their friends, I don't know. But but it was amazing to see the bond that it created for those who came to see the show.
1: If you've experienced loss, there is no more emotional ending to a musical ever. mm mm-hmm. And I feel I, like we've all experienced it. Or if you if we haven't, yeah. you're, spoiler alert, you're going to. <laughs> yeah. One of the things we don't escape in this life.
0: When Joan Rivers came to see the show, she I think she coined it perfectly because um, it is such an emotional show. And she came backstage after the show. She said to me, you know what the show is? You look to your left and you see all the men are crying. You look to your right and all the men are crying. It's beaches for men. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah because in in a way it is like because it is it's the story of this man i mean he says i know i wasn't perfect i know my life was small i know that i pretended that i knew it all but when you tell my story and i hope somebody does remember me as something bigger than i was like that right there just says it all you know it's what anybody who wants to be a father, you want to be the best you can be or a father yeah. or a mother or a student or a teacher. It just echoes that sentiment so beautifully. I don't think I ever heard that song without just crying. and I saw the show. Wow, that's amazing.
1: I think that we we can trash on men pretty easily um, <laughs> these days. And I mean, look, it's it's not without reason, <laughs> historically speaking. But But this show does remind me of how important it is to listen and particularly listen to our men in our lives. Because I feel like the messaging that they receive, because we all receive messaging, Mm -hmm. is that they are not supposed to express emotion because that is weakness. And that lyric puts it so beautifully. Like his biggest fear is that he's not enough. Mm -hmm. You know, that he's not big enough and strong enough as a man, as uh, the head of his family. And in many ways, that has fueled these stories to make sure that his life means more than he's afraid it won't. Yeah. All right, well, I kind of want to dig into it. So can we talk through the show? Sure, of course. It gets a little complex in terms of the time shifts. So help keep me on, on track. Okay. The show opens in the present, as it were right and we have the grown son will who has come home with his bride-to-be josephine and his parents edward and sandra 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 and right from the get-go we know that there's a lot of history because they are at the place where edward had taught will how to fish Mm -hmm. this river will tells his dad, hey, dad, look, I'm about to get married. Could you do me a favor? I don't want you to say anything at the reception. I don't want you to make a toast. I don't want you to make any jokes. Like, it it becomes the Edward show, and I just want this to be about me and my wife. Yep. Love you, dad, but, like, keep the trap shut. <laughs> and And then how do we get into the opening number from that?
0: Yeah, so they're, stand, they're standing out there on the waterfront, and they're, you know, skipping stones, basically. So as as that happens... Will is trying to skip stones, but he's no good at it. But Edward, you know, of course, uh, skips one. And what happens is magically in the theater, the entire stage through the magic of projection uh, fills with water and and things lift up off of the ground and the scene changes and time goes back. And now we're back. So young Will is now six years old.
1: So we've had an actor change out for Will. But in a tour de force slash change from the film, it's still Norbert Leo Butz as the father. He Correct. plays himself as both the younger and the older. That's right. I didn't mention that we're in Alabama. So we're in the South. Mm-hmm. And there is something about Southern mystique, tall tales, even in New Orleans, there's always like a feeling of magic that yeah. that is always captured. Mm-hmm. And and this whole story is really capitalizing on that. It, it, it feels like American fairy tale. Oh, yeah. Yeah, universe.
0: yeah. I can see that. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, the, the whole opening number is essentially him, you know, taking
0: him through all these legends of the things that he made up. Of course, Will believes he made them up. And one day I met a giant. And one day I met a mermaid and,
1: you know. And uh, the witch, uh, of course.
0: And, of course, the witch, yeah. So that's the whole opening number. Basically, here's Edward, you know, painting this giant picture of, all the things he's done in his life. And,
1: and the song is called Be the Hero, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Write your own story so you can be the hero. He finishes all of these stories. Uh, Sandra comes in and is like, why are you keeping our child awake? He He needs to go to bed. Edward tries to leave, but then his son catches wind of this witch story. Yeah. And um, Edward's like, no, I, I don't think I can tell you that one. It's too scary. You won't be able to go to sleep. He's like, I'm not scared, of course, because a child <laughs> n- even more interested now. Right. Which then gives way to the big witch story. Yeah. And this is quite possibly the most transformative story of all of the ones that he tells, mm-hmm. which is that he and his friends, when they were little, go into the woods because every town in the South has a witch. Yeah and they come across this witch who will tell fortunes for money one of his friends what's his name don yeah don
0: price yeah and yeah, Zach don, price, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: he pays a dollar and gets his fortune told which is not not great basically that <laughs> he'll live an insignificant life and die and he's like i want my money back and <laughs> right. uh and edward sticks up for the witch and gives don his dollar that he was going to give the witch just so that he'll leave her alone. Mm-hmm. The witch rewards that with telling Edward his future, which is exactly the opposite. She tells him that he will live an incredible life mm-hmm. and then proceeds to tell him exactly how he'll die. Mm-hmm. And when young Will asks his dad, Well, how is it? How are you going to die? he replies with, Well, I'm not going to tell you and ruin the ending. Mm-hmm. And yet we know he knows how he's going to die. Yeah,
0: He saw it all. Edward was shown it all. The witch showed it to him yeah, and the way the the show is designed, you know the in the vision sort of that she shows him, the witches have these big giant cloaks on that they they do a dance and fill the stage. Uh, projections actually appear on the back of these witches, and you can just make up it's kind of through water, of course, but you if you compare that picture to the end, it's actually a foreboding of what's going to come oh, later wow. on, so Edward actually did see you know, all of the people that were going to be, you know, at the end when he's dying at the river. He saw the vision of kind of how it happened.
1: How cool. So now, the, now we're back to present day mm-hmm. and it's like the day of the wedding. Edward has suspected that the fiance, Josephine, is pregnant. Mm-hmm. And Will's like, what? How did you know? Like, we haven't told anybody. <laughs> and, and he's like, how did you know? And he's like, well, just now when you responded. that way. <laughs> <laughs> And Will once again pleads like, well, don't say anything, please. Mm-hmm. It, it's too soon. Anything can happen. We, we haven't even really got the ultrasound yet. Yeah. Cut to the wedding reception. Edward goes against the wishes and starts making a toast saying all of the jokes because and it becomes the Edward show and then icing on top of the cake he tells everybody that he's going to be a grandpa <laughs> it's like outing your child before they get to <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> that's sort of Edward's theme he just he, he jumps to everybody's beats
1: now Will is of course furious kind of setting up the dynamic that we see throughout the rest of the show which is Will on one side, Edward's on the other side, and mom in the middle being like, oh, what am I going to do with you boys? <laughs> uh-huh, yep. Right around that time, we also find out that Edward is sick.
0: You know, they leave the wedding, then time passes. So, you know, it's been several months, you know, now, now, now we see... Uh, Edward and Sandra at the doctor, and Josephine's further on into the pregnancy.
1: Yeah, so it's like these hospital scenes happening in tandem. Mm -hmm. One where Edward and Sandra are finding out about the end of his life, and then one where Will and Josephine are finding about the beginning of their child's life. Yeah, Yeah. Will and Josephine realize that they are expecting a son, that it's going Mm -hmm. to be a a baby boy. That causes Will to reflect on not only his future relationship with his son, but his current relationship with his father. And he sings the song Stranger, which, I mean, is exactly (laughs) what that character needs. Stranger probably is one of the reasons why the character is more sympathetic in the musical, because we get an entire moment of him having an I Want song about the relationships with the men in his life.
0: Yeah, and this was new from Chicago. This did not exist in the Chicago production.
1: You're kidding me! I can't were, imagine the show without it.
0: Yeah, I know that's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. What what
1: what used to happen was
0: uh, Will and Edward were fighting, and then they sang a song together about you know them not connecting. And oh, so, is that
1: the river divides us sort of yes, thing? Yes,
0: that's where that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Which is like a bonus track on the cast yes, albums.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then this song, Stranger, sort of came out of, you know, let's make sure Will, you know, is more sympathetic. And so, you know, it's very appropriate, you know, here he is, the idea of now I'm going to be a father. I don't want to make in his mind the mistakes that his father made. And how can I make sure I do it the
1: right way? Because to be fair, on top of him being kind of a showman, he was very absent. He's a traveling salesman, kind of Correct. like a Harold Hill type person. So he's yeah. going from town to town to town. He's never there. But he didn't know that.
0: He thought he was there every time he was needed. Yeah, but he was absolutely not there when he was needed.
1: After Stranger, Will gets a phone call, yeah. which is yeah. when he learns about his dad's health condition. Yeah. And so he and Josephine go back home. Yeah, In Alabama... This is the time to start doing the work, as Ian LeVansant would say. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The son, Will, is talking to his mom, and she sings this great song about how there are two men in my life, my husband and my son, and that you guys are more alike than you think. Mm -hmm. And I think that was certainly true with me and my dad. We didn't ever bump heads in the way that Will and Edward did. But when we did, I now looking back on it, I know it was because we were so similar. Very yeah. analytical, very verbal. Uh, you know, yeah. my brother was the one who was like, I want to go downstairs and like put on my headphones and rock out to Metallica. And I was like, no, <laughs> I need an <laughs> itemized <laughs> list of what's going on. <laughs> how How about you? What? Uh, what was your relationship like with your with your pops
0: yeah my dad's still here he's is wonderful. He? oh cool yeah yeah um he sadly is going through parkinson's at the moment oh, so it's wow. been I'm so sorry to hear that uh yeah but he's he's a trooper and, and we've always had a wonderful relationship and there are some similarities between edward and my dad and, and probably t- between will and i you know all of my brothers are like big into sports and I was terrible at sports so I always felt like the, the imposter in the family uh, <laughs> my dad was he was not big and boisterous like Edward was but he always told fun stories and he always made me feel special and you know took me on special work trips he also traveled a lot for work so there were a lot of similarities you oh, know, wow. between between my dad and, and edward so I, was, I certainly found myself you know calling on that a lot as we were building the show oh, i'm sure And my dad came to see it actually my, my mom and dad came to our opening night oh. and I, I think it was so cool for them to to be there in fact the opening night party was at rosebrand you know when, back when it was around and it was right across the street from the theater and and you know of course my mom and dad knew that there was going to be famous people there and they wouldn't recognize them so my dad just took a picture of everybody that came in <laughs> and so I scrolled through his phone later to see if there were any famous people
1: <laughs> just to be safe just we to be safe don't miss the
0: famous ones yeah uh, yeah but actually my, the, my mom and dad's relationship is very similar to Edward and Sandra Really? My mom's the busybody and the peacekeeper. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and my dad, you know, travels a lot for work. Uh, they're still really, really close. They're
1: wonderful. How sweet. Where do they live? Utah, Salt Lake City. In the SLC. That's right. Whoa, whoa. How cute. <laughs> yeah. I think because of Sandra, Will decides all right, well. If I'm going to understand my dad, then I need to start deciding what is fact and what is fiction about his life. I don't even know him. All I know are these crazy stories. And so he starts treating his dad like he would as a reporter. Mm-hmm. And is going through all of the memories and, and writing down everything that he knows and everything that he doesn't. So the first big story that we go to in his life is his um, childhood in Ashton, right? Isn't that the name of the, the Yeah, term? Ashton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at that point, he has this girlfriend named Jenny Hill. Mm -hmm. who's beautiful and bright and blonde. And Jenny is so in love with Edward. Of course, how could you not be so charismatic? (laughs) And the town of Ashton at this point is terrified of a local giant who's living in this cave in the mountains. And (laughs) they kind of want to do this like Frankenstein pitchforks drive him out of town.
0: Uh
1: Edward volunteers to go and talk to him so that you know like he's probably a nice guy just gotta chat with him
0: yeah he says nobody's ever talked to him why don't you go I'll go talk to him yeah not to mention
1: the witch told him how he was gonna die and it wasn't because he was talking to a giant
0: yeah I think that's
1: one of the key things the whole show like he knows how he's gonna
0: die he says it over and over the saying it yeah so I'm I have no problem going
1: to talk to the giant no need to fear Mm mm-hmm yep he goes to uh, the cave the nearby cave (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's funny. This whole
0: sequence is really interesting. Like the song Ashton's favorite son is really like a a flashback, and it's just like wow, it's like a, some weird fifties, you know, version of reality. And then it just keeps going into so you really get the difference of what's real, you know, back at home. But then as soon as you launch into any of the stories that Edward tells, there's just this magical weirdness to it that you know that's the reason why Will is so suspect
1: of it. And can we talk about this ensemble? Like the yeah. hardest working ensemble. <laughs> I'll tell you. Because each of amazing. these surreal moments are a huge production number filled with people and new costumes.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, what The auditions for Big Fish, it was wild because we needed people, you know, later we're about to go to the circus and we needed people who could... Juggle, who could ride unicycles, who could flip, wow. and then, of course, the giant who needed to work in painter's stilts. You know, it was, I think of, you know, we had more more than triple threats in that cast. They were already triple, and then many of them learned these circus tricks, you know, for the show. So, yeah, it was a pretty amazing cast. Oh my cast. gosh.
1: Good for them, man.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so he meets Carl. Right. We'll just skip to it. <laughs> he meets the giant <laughs> named Carl. And Carl turns out is actually a very uh logical and sweet guy yeah but he's also an agoraphobic he he's terrified of going outside and so edward says all right well i need to go see the world i need to get out of this small little town i need to go see the world and live my life that the witch promised that i would Mm -hmm. why don't you come with me and Ultimately, the uh, Carl agrees, and so they sing out there on the road, which in which they leave town.
0: I think it's cool. In, in that scene with Carl, he said, "I think you know he immediately diagnoses what's wrong with the giant. Well, you're not, you know, you're just alone. You're you, you, you want to get out there." And he says to him, "You know, look, this too, this town is too small for you, and it's too small for a man of my ambition. Let's get out of here, you know." So he, he, you know, he immediately solves the problem of the giant which also coincidentally solves his problem. Now he can get out of town.
1: (laughs) Did you grow up in a small town? Uh, I
0: was born in Denver, Colorado, but I grew up in Salt Lake City, so a suburb of Salt Lake City. I didn't think it was small, but now that I live in New York, it seems small.
1: I mean, let's be honest, Jeff. The reason you're so busy is because of the land of Deseret. Like that... (laughs) We're, we are all haunted by it. <laughs> We're all so busy. I do blame
0: my mom. My mom is the busiest body ever. So she, <laughs> she can never sit still for a minute. So I think I have part of her genetic code inside.
1: <laughs> I think that there is something to growing up in a small town. Nobody ever grows up in New York City and is like, oh, I need to get out of this place and yeah. like see the world. I, I think there can be like, I need to get out of my neighborhood, like that sort of thing. Uh-huh. But Unless you grew up in a small town, there is this thing that we deal with where I'm proud of the place where I come from. I love it. I'm so grateful for it. And is this all there is? <laughs> Grappling with that and not feeling guilty about it. I always love when it's in a musical because I, I feel seen and heard.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is so true. I mean, I was 12, I think, when I first you know took a trip to New York City. And the second I, we, I landed in Newark, took the bus, you know, under the tunnel, I'll never forget coming out. And I just went, this is where I'm going to live someday. I just knew wow. this is where I would be someday. So, yeah, yeah I, I definitely totally always that. knew that I would not stay in Salt Lake for long. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful place. I love visiting, but I, I don't live there. I, and, and, <laughs> that's all, and that's all there is. <laughs> <laughs> no, the it's beautiful true. mountains. They have the perfect seasons in Utah. It's so oh,
1: Fall, living in california i miss fall i miss like beautiful. carving pumpkins and not having them mold overnight <laughs> they last funny. so long in utah you can oh, have a jack-o'-lantern true. for weeks it's amazing i never
0: realized that you're right that's <laughs> true okay
1: scary. so now carl and edward are out in the world yeah. and they come upon a circus yeah they do yep. they stumble upon the circus the circus is run by amos Mm -hmm. who is a werewolf (laughs) (laughs) naturally (laughs) naturally and at that point there's like a girl group auditioning to be one of the acts yeah and one of those girls is sandra and so they're doing their little audition little lamb from alabama Mm -hmm. and edward sees her and time stops yeah. Now, this is the one of the most visually amazing moments from the film. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Literally time stops and Ewan McGregor, who's playing the, the young Edward, is able to move the popcorn that's like in the <laughs> in the air away in order to like get closer to this woman. Yeah. Talk to me about what you, you all did in the in the theater.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Andrew Lippo was he, he often tells a story about, you know, when we were figuring out how to do this you know, Stroman was saying, you know, like, the girls are going to be doing a clogging number, you know, something fun. And he had written something that wasn't quite like upbeat enough. And so Stroman was, she sent him away saying, write me something you know, something more fun and like upbeat. And, you know, like, so she thought it was going to go away. And he was like, you mean something like this? And he was kind of like joking around on the piano. And he wrote the song on the spot. I was like, okay, that's the song. Well, that's it. <laughs> he said it like oh took him gosh. like less than three minutes to write that song, the Alabama Lamb <laughs> song. Um, but then, yes, yeah, to t- to answer your question, you know how that moment happened. Scenically, there's there's a set of bleachers, and the girls are doing their audition downstage for for Amos, and uh, Edward climbs up the back of the the bleachers and is just watching the the real number. And then, as soon as like they make eye contact, time slows, the music slows, and you know she just looks at him briefly, but he you know, zooms in on her, and he makes a slow walk down stage center. But really, in the, the realness of time, they didn't really talk at all. They just had one little glance together, but this whole big, beautiful number of time stops occurs in a, in a combination of super, super slow motion clogging.
1: To quote Jerry Herman, it only takes a moment. Ah, uh, yes.
0: <laughs> and oddly enough, this whole sequence, the whole circus sequence, of all the shows I've done with Stroman, this sequence took the longest amount of tech time to really yeah, because it's it, you know there 's this song, but then there 's a whole sequence after it where there 's dancing elephants and you know circus tricks and unicycles, and this whole sequence happened so magically, but it took four complete days of tech to actually get through figure oh out gosh. how because of course, of course, the cast has to change from you know, dancing clown to get into the elephant costume. And so so it was an incredibly challenging uh, tech wow. process to do. So I think of all the texts I've ever done, the circus sequence was took us the longest to get right. That's insane.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about that sequence. So yeah. Edward is obsessed with knowing who this girl is, right? That yeah. he's bound to, to marry. He's convinced. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so he asks Amos, the guy the, who owns the circus, you got to tell me who this girl is. He's like, mm, it's not going to happen. However, if you work for me every month, I will give you one clue. All right. <laughs> so skip to three years later, he's still working at the circus and he still doesn't know her name, but like he knows that she likes blue and he knows that she likes daffodils and then finally he gets he knows her name mm-hmm. um and that only is because edward finds out that amos is a werewolf right. and <laughs> and helps him not feel so ashamed about it
0: <laughs> yeah that's
1: right yeah so he finally reveals oh i i know her father she's at
0: auburn university if you want to go find her that's where you should go
1: and her name is sandra templeton yeah <laughs> so edward travels all the way to this university to find her. He finds her only to realize that she is actually engaged to someone, but not just anybody. She's engaged <laughs> to Don Price,
0: ah, dun, dun, dun.
1: The, the high school rival. <laughs> and when Don sees Edward, he's like, oh, come on, not this guy again. And of course, uh,
0: you didn't mention the way he traveled. He travels via cannonball. Oh so my he, gosh! How could circ- I forget <laughs> the way? Well, the way he's going to get there. I'm out of the circus, so he climbs into the cannon. He gets <laughs> shot out of the cannon, and of course lands perfectly in Auburn University campus. <laughs> I say perfectly, but of course that was a dummy that fell into the trees. And but then he pops up with his helmet, and there she is,
1: and he's on the hunt looking for her. That's fantastic. No wonder Will's like, oh, my gosh, Dad, can you please (laughs) just tell me an actual fact, please?
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Don gets really mad about the fact that his rival is, you know, showing up and trying to take away Sandra. So he and his, like, droods (laughs) uh, beat him up. And because they beat up Edward, uh, Sandra breaks up with Don on the spot and picks Edward over him.
0: Yeah, he brought daffodils magically with him in the
1: canon and (laughs) it's actually a really lovely duet called daffodils Mm -hmm. has there ever been a song called daffodils in musical theater absolutely not but here it is (laughs) and just such a beautiful visual the entire stage filling up with daffodils
0: yeah it was really really magical yeah because the the way the the stage was designed it was mostly a series of moving panels and you know, and projections upon those panels. And now for the first time, uh, you know, we have uh, daffodils that magically rise out of the stage, but also an, an entire uh, back wall mountain of daffodils actually really shows up. So we've been looking at mostly like you know, projections Projection. and not real. And then finally to see an entire mountain of daffodils was pretty spectacular ending of Act One.
1: Yes. Romance. Yes. <laughs> um, I guess something that I skipped is that Will, in the process of looking for facts, comes upon a deed to a house in Ashton Yeah. that is signed by both Edward and Jenny Hill. So now kind of planted in his brain is, was my dad leading a double life? Mm-hmm. You know, traveling yeah. salesman, it's not that big of a stretch to think he may have another family. Right. So now act two is is about really getting down to brass tacks about what that is all about. First, though, is the whole war thing. This big war sequence is the moment from Will's childhood when he realizes these things that Dad has been telling me are probably not true.
0: Yeah, and that's true. Yeah, he always just kind of went along with whatever Dad said. But yeah, that was sort of probably the first moment where he began to question, you know, that couldn't possibly be true.
1: So it's this whole red, white, and true number in which Mm. he saves, like, a general from being assassinated (laughs) by this guy Uh, called Red Fang. Yeah, Red Fang, the
0: poison assassin.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And the way that he saves him is Red Fang, like, blows a poisonous dart. Edward, like, jumps in front of it and catches the dart in his neck. But because... Why doesn't he die? It's something ridiculous.
0: How does that work? I can't remember now. Oh, I know. Oh, he says, so, uh, here's the line. He says, luckily, years earlier, I had bitten by the chucolabra snake yeah. in Tanzania, and I was immune to Red Fang's poison. <laughs> That's the what chucolabra, <laughs> of course. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because he shoots the dart in his neck, but of course he's immune to it. And so then instead he throws the dart at Red Fang, and <laughs> he uh, falls to the ground gasping, chucolabra. <laughs> That's <laughs> uh, um, and so after that whole story young will's like oh, dad what war was that and he's like eh, it doesn't matter
0: yeah yeah that's the first moment where he's like oh, my dad's not telling the truth
1: next comes this great song called fight the dragons which is one of my favorite songs in the yeah. in the show
0: you know, this is one moment where Edward comes in, you know, in a rush, and, you know, they're going to play ball together, and uh, young Will just keeps saying, you know, you missed my game, and I'm, you know, I'm not playing soccer anymore, he's, you don't get me at all, and Edward just says, you know, I'm, I'm no, I'm, I'm gone, I'm gone a lot, but you know why I'm doing this? It's all for you, and so mm-hmm. he, he tells this, you know, story about, uh, you know, all the things uh, I'm living in the office, I'm doing that, but I, I, what I really do is I fight the dragons, and, I'm going to fight the dragons for you until you have the ability to, when you become a father too, you'll understand. Wow. At at the end of fight the dragons, you know, Edward is full of life and vibrant. And then in this, the way that was staged, essentially young Will, who's there with his father, sort of becomes old Will again. So they're sort of in the same place in the house where that moment happened. So old Will now with this folder in his hand of, maybe his father was having an affair he's really putting it together and meanwhile edward has is basically in a fever dream and just like sort of losing it so he intends to go into the you know bedroom to you know start a fight you know but but edward is just really out of it
1: that gives way to like you said this fever dream this full on nightmare where maybe because of the sickness maybe because of the medicine maybe all together He pictures a a showdown number that that comes out of the TV because there's like a Western playing in in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And his son is playing the sheriff and he's playing like the outlaw and, you know, his son is saying there's going to be a showdown. There's going to be a hanging, you know, like all of those sorts of things that you, you might Mm -hmm. see in a Western.
0: Yeah. Or sort of a break in reality. And uh, yeah, crawling out of the television set on on stage, basically the entire cast comes out of this (laughs) television set and comes to life. And now Edward's bedroom has become the saloon where this battle between the sheriff, who now is Will, his son, sort of plays out in a, you know, in a fantasy way. So it gives them the chance to really you know, stylistically you know, make their case to one another.
1: Yeah. yeah. And now that I think about it, I'm like getting ring vibes. Remember the <laughs> Samara <laughs> crawling out of the television set? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: um, okay. Cool. Uh, Ed- so Edward wakes up. Sandra is there to comfort him. This song, <laughs> oh. she sings this amazing song called I Don't Need a Roof and one of my favorite lyrics in the entire show i don't need a roof to say i'm covered i don't need a roof to know i'm home there could be a single shingle dangling overhead i don't need a roof to make my bed
0: That's
1: so so sweet and just like simple but beautiful
0: it's a it's a beautiful moment also because it's contrasted from what just happened here's you know, this crazy, you know, nightmare and by the end of it, Edward is standing and just screaming. She wakes up and, and calms him down and basically just holds him and they just sit down and stay center and the rain is happening and he says, Oh well, when I'm gone you're gonna have to get those shingles fixed so the the rain doesn't come in and so that's sort of how the song was born. Well I don't I don't need a roof. I'm not thinking I'm not worried about the roof right now. Just hold me and just be with me. Um, every night watching this, watching Kate Baldwin deliver this number, we haven't even talked about Kate uh, Baldwin. Kate oh my Baldwin. gosh, she's amazing. That voice, this, she can sing anything. She can sing anything, and she she's an, a brilliant actor. I mean, to watch this is a you know an emotional song, um, but to watch her do this every night, you know, we the audience were just bawling. Mm-hmm. And she said to me one night when I was just t- chatting about, it, she goes, "Well, you have two choices. You can either cry." Or sing, (laughs) and so so she did a beautiful job of like you know not wallowing in the self pity because actually this is the most beautiful positive moment ever. Brave, of course, yeah, of course. From our perspective, we were breaking our hearts, seeing knowing that that wasn't going to last. But it was a brilliant way to watch her deliver that number on opening night. Incidentally, Andrew Lipper came up to me and opened up his lapel and showed me the inside of his his jacket yeah. and in gray uh, embroidered on his pocket said i don't need a roof
1: that is the sweetest thing i've ever Isn't that heard. sweet yeah that's the yeah. same guy who wrote give me a bottle of bourbon and half a chicken and i'll conquer the world <laughs> he's very versatile in <laughs> that, <though. laughs> amazing okay will goes to ashton because he realizes he can't have this conversation with his dad. It's not helping his condition, his health condition. So he's just going to go to Ashton. He goes to Ashton. He finds Jenny Hill. Gets the story about what happened. So this was a really brilliant way to like incorporate two stories from the movie into one. Yeah. Ashton, hometown is about to be flooded because the government has built a dam, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to have the dam, all of the area needs to go underwater. And Ashton's like, absolutely not. We're a small town. We are here. We are here. Uh And Edward shows up because he promised that he would come back. And Jenny's thrilled. Everyone's thrilled. And to their surprise, he tells them, I think we need to move the town, find another place to do it and start over. And they're like, we can't do that. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, leave it to me. He goes to Amos, the circus guy, and (laughs) is like, I need land. Amos Mm -hmm. says, absolutely. You were there for me as a werewolf. Um, I will give you land. So he get, he gets the land from Amos. He goes to Carl the Giant, who is now a very wealthy giant because of uh, some smart investments in Wall Street, and <laughs> and gets money from Carl. So now he has both the land and the money. He helps the whole town move and basically saves Ashton,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is one of the most heroic things. No, no, I would say probably the most heroic thing, outright heroic thing that he had done in his life. And Will had never heard this story. And the reason why is because in the process, he also bought Jenny a house because her heart was broken when he left. And to make it up to her, he gets the house. She kisses him. He stops it and says, no, I can't. I... I love my wife. She is the only girl for me. But if he told Will that story about the town, then he would also have to talk about Jenny, and like that was that was too vulnerable. I think.
0: Yeah, Uh, this is such a big moment for Will to learn this story. You know, here here he's on the brink of thinking he's going to catch his father, you know, having an affair, and he discovers that oh, my father saved this entire town. And then the second that this girl who was in love with him even kisses him, he stops immediately and says, I love my wife. She's wow. the only one for me. And he walks away and he never sees her again. So that was such a huge you know, journey for Will to make this discovery about his father, who he had been assuming was doing the very worst possible.
1: Yeah, talk about assuming the worst, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely yeah, absolutely right. Uh-huh. After his time in Ashton, he gets a phone call that... Dad's in the hospital. So Will goes to the hospital and learns that, like, this is it. He's probably not getting out of here. And Sandra and Josephine, the wife, go downstairs and leave Edward and Will together. And Edward is, he's kind of out. He's out, yeah. And
0: he asked the doctor, can he hear us? And he said, well, the doctor says it's hard to say what anybody hears, but harder to know if they're listening. And the doctor leaves him alone with his dad
1: he has this really beautiful monologue about how you put all of his stories together and they create a myth, which the purpose of a myth in classical storytelling is to explain something that's bigger than all of us. And in many ways, like this myth that his father has created is to explain what life is, you know, and particularly his life.
0: And he says it beautifully. He says in there, an epic tale about a farmer's son from Alabama who wanted to see the world. But you never did, Dad. I did. And that's because of you. And he said, I think it's so beautiful. He says, all this time I thought you were trying to impress me. You were trying to inspire me. And that's so beautiful. Mm.
1: <laughs> this actually makes me think of, we, we recently covered Cinderella. And mm. in talking about fairy tales, the more that you analyze them, the more you realize how problematic they are. <laughs> right? Yes. And one of the messages of Big Fish is like think less.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like sometimes
1: true. it doesn't matter. And I'm I'm not sitting here and saying that like facts don't matter. But mm-hmm. if we are so concentrated on the facts that we are missing life, if we're yeah. missing the greater message, the spirit mm-hmm. of the law, if you will. Yeah. Then that's on us, you know?
0: That's true. Yeah. That's and really
1: true. It, it feels like a balance that we have to strike in our lives, particularly. And you, I feel like we're very polarized on either that's, end of that.
0: Yeah, that's so true.
1: At this point, Edward responds, kind of wakes up. And Will at the is like, it's the end, Dad. You got to tell me how you die. Yeah. He doesn't remember. And he's in
0: a rush, too. Edward is like, he wakes up and he's like, I got to get to the river. And he's like. No, Dad, you're not going to the river. Like, we're here at the hospital. And mm-hmm. he's just, he won't take no for an answer the water. And so, yeah, Will sort of stuck with, like, what shall we do? You know, and Edward insists that he's got to, you know, get to the river and, you know, get out of there. And so now, Will, for the first time, Will is the one who sort of takes the wheel and goes, okay, I'm going to play my dad's game and take you on this journey. And they do this whole escape out of the hospital, you know, to get him free of the hospital. So he, kidnaps him from his, from his hospital room and they get in a car and they drive away and they get down to the river. So it's a pretty cool turning around moment for Will, who's so far been thinking too much. And now, like, as you said, he's just going, all right, I'm just going to go for it.
1: Yeah. So it's yeah. this whole song called What's Next, which takes him to the river.
0: And it's, it's reminiscent of what we saw earlier when the witch was showing him his death, all the people, all the characters from every story in his life, appears, you know, and they're in the exact same spot where the witch showed it earlier in this vision on the witch's cloaks. So everybody's there, the giant, the mermaid, Jenny Hill, everybody's there. He sees everybody and he says, well, I can't say this was a surprise exactly, because he knows (laughs) what it was. And he says, but somebody's missing here. And then you see Sandra and she comes in and then he sings, I think one of the most beautiful songs in musical theater, How It Ends. Yeah. I, when I first heard that song, of course, I just lost it. It was bawling. And I just I said to Andrew after that run, I said, I can't believe that the song didn't exist before. It so makes sense, and it's so perfect, and it just... it. Echoes my sentiments, anybody who wants to be a, a good person and a good father, I just said somehow you like you pulled that song out of the heavens, and it's now it's here, but it's', it's such a beautiful, beautiful ending to the show. It really, truly
1: is Wow uh, one of my favorite lyrics from that song is um, oh my gosh, I need to be off book. <laughs> <laughs> It ends with sons, it ends with wives, it ends with knowing when the pavement bends, we find our lives. There was a bravery to the way that Edward lived his life for whatever reason. And it's like in those moments where you don't know what's coming next, even that song, What's Next, right? Mm -hmm. Those moments when you don't think too much and you follow your gut and you lead with bravery and with faith, like those are the moments where you actually find what yep. your life becomes, what your life is meant to be.
0: Yep, that is so
1: true. And then he passes away.
0: Yeah. And what happened? He finishes just past those lyrics you you shared. He says, "So let it come and let me go. Show me the waves and let them flow. It all ends well. This much I know." And that then the entire group surrounds him, just like congratulating him. And then as they you know pull away, now the hospital has reappeared, and he's never gone anywhere. He's been in that hospital bed, and the, and now it's just Will, where he was before, st- sitting by his dad's, holding his hand, and you hear the flat line go, and then you hear Will say, and that's how it happens. That's how you go. And they spend a moment there together. So he never really did leave the hospital, but he saw the vision of all those people that he had in his life and those that were real and those that were just stories all combined together and that's really the lesson that we'll learned, you know that it's not necessarily about what's true but what you learn and what, who you touch along the way and then and then that sort of segues into flash forward now uh, we're at the funeral we, we hear you know the funeral and everybody's putting their daffodils into the water
1: Susan what are you doing to me <laughs> oh my gosh yeah, and so all
0: these daffodils are going into the water, and then at the very, at the, at the very end, you know, all these daffodils have gone into the water, and then a giant catfish leaps out of the water and does a big splash, and that's Edward Bloom you know, in a different form.
1: <laughs> that's so sweet. And um, there at the funeral yeah, are all of these people, and is it a giant? No, but it's a really tall guy.
0: Yeah, essentially what you
1: see, you learn that all
0: all of the all these fantastical creatures that were in the story, now you see the real version of them. So you see, oh the these were the real people in his life who he came across and he just created stories about this tall person who was the giant that he interacted
1: and, and with. And you know what, maybe he did help that tall guy overcome his agoraphobia was he a giant living in a in a cave no <laughs> you know what i mean it's i
0: think that's true yeah i think there are versions of history you know versions of the truth that he just embellished and maybe so that his son could understand a lesson uh, who knows for what reason but that it's a beautiful moment at the end for for will to just connect all these people that oh oh my gosh i know you like i know your story but yeah. you're not really the giant but will goes up and he, you know he goes up to the tall man uh, you know, the giant's name is Carl. He says, I don't think we've met. I'm Will. And he, the guy says, I'm Carl. Goes, oh. So I think you imagine that, yeah, these were all real people that were really in Edward's life that just he impacted or they impacted him in some way.
1: Cut to a few years later, now Will and, and has his own son. You guys had a lot of children in this show. Yes, Now that did. I'm thinking about yeah. it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Will and his son are now at the river. Yeah. And we we get the idea that Will is uh, carrying on the tradition of the big fish stories. That's right. Yeah. And he reprises the song "Be the Hero" that his that we heard his dad sing at the very beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like father, like son, even if you don't want to be.
1: Yeah. And the sooner that we can get over that, the better.
0: That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, We it's are a our wonderful... parents. Embrace it and it's move on. <laughs> so true. Yeah. And it's wonderful to see, you know, Will make that transition because he goes from, you know, being the suspect of his father and now accepting that actually he learns all these wonderful things that his father did. That's a pretty cool transformation. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: It's a beautiful show with, like I said, one of my favorite endings and, and, if I'm being totally honest, sometimes I think I, I like the ending more than anything in the show. Mm-hmm. And, and yet like it doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's no way that that ending can be as impactful without everything that's led up to it. So yeah. like, because I love the ending, I have to like the show. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. No, it's, it's a such a, I think the last 10 minutes of the show are just some of the most powerful that I've ever seen in any show. Just the emotional impact of, you know you've loved edward bloom all night long and then to see him and his legacy you know go and learn why he did it you know just so that you know you you can tell my story and i hope somebody will tell my story and that i pass the torch to you and then see his son pick up that torch i think it's everybody's dream to see you know whatever legacy you you give to let that you know pass it forward so that we can all you know stand on the shoulders of those who came before us
1: amen well said <laughs> Well said. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is actually something with all of the talk that we've had on the show about Susan Stroman, one of the things we haven't discussed is how young she was when she was widowed. Yeah, Um, Her husband was theater director Mike Ockrent, who they worked together on Crazy For You. He's a very, uh, very well-respected director. And he passed away very tragically in the nineties, right, yeah,
0: yeah, leukemia, yes, yeah leukemia,
1: and in many ways, I think that it was from my perspective out here, yeah it was kind of a double blow because it looked like her collaborator is gone, and her husband is gone. Yeah, yeah. what is going how do you move on, yeah, and what's amazing is that she moved on by becoming a director and choreographer, one of the best ever, yeah. and then brings us stories like this that say exactly how you do it, it does, how you yeah. move And
0: on. I think, you know, they, they were so close, you know, in life and in work. And, you know, he, he, I never met Mike, so it was before I, I met her. But to hear her speak about the creative process with him, he's absolutely in her thoughts and in her mind and the things she creates. You know, he's, he's never far from mind. He was the one who's quoted to say that rehearsal is the best part. And so she certainly makes that her mission, you know, just that when you're in rehearsal and you're creating together to, to have a fun time and to, you know, to enjoy the process along the way. And so she absolutely exudes that. And I know this, Mike had a big impact in the telling of this story, you know, that the impact that he had in her life and in her work certainly came to play, you know, as we were staging the end of this, you know, end of this piece.
1: Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today to go through the show. It was really, really lovely. Oh, it's
0: lovely to chat with you. Thank you so much for for going through it
1: with me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. (laughs) As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at amusicalpodcast, where we have more great content And if you want to do something even better, go to our TeePublic store where we have great designs that you can put on products from episodes past and present. Jeff, how do we follow you and everything you're up to?
0: Oh, you can find me. uh, My website is jeffwhiting.com or you can follow me on Instagram at jeffwhitingnyc.
1: Fantastic. Thank you again. What a pleasure. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. And to everybody out there, remember, rehearsal is the best part.